Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Rob Dalrymple. I'm the pastor here at Northminster. It's good to see you all this morning, and I want us to reflect upon the words of that song. Take my life and let it be. We're going to sing in a few minutes. We're going to sing the song, the song Father, You Are All We Need. And the question this morning is, is that really the case? Is it really true that, God, you are all we need? James, go ahead and put that slide up, if you will. There's a slide that was powerful I came across this week. My wife sent to me, and she says, Comfortable people don't need Jesus. Desperate people do. Comfortable people don't need Jesus. Desperate people do. And I want to pray this morning that we are those desperate people, not the comfortable ones. Now, we're in the Gospel of Luke this morning and continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we're probably in what might be the most significant passage in all of Scripture. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. It, it's the essence of Jesus' teachings. It's, it, it's the bottom line of all that He taught. And I'm really worried this morning as I have been preparing all morning that we're just going to hear these words and they're just going to be good religious, spiritual words that we hear in church and we're going to go home and nothing's going to change. And we want to be people, I know we do, that want to be changed by the radical words of Jesus. But this is radical, folks. This is like life cannot go on as normal words. A pastor was praying one day and he said, it wasn't me because I don't pray. Um, just kidding. A pastor was praying one day earnestly for God to save his community. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, God, save my community. God, bring them to Jesus. God, help them to grow. Help my community be transformed by the gospel. And finally, God answered him one day. And he said, okay, but does it have to be through your church? And the pastor stopped and realized that what he was really praying was not for the people. He was praying for himself. He was praying that his church would grow. That he would be great and all would be good. Did he really care about the people and their salvation, or did he really care about himself? And I think it's easy for us as the church to kind of get stopped there. And If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. It's uh, page 729 in your pew Bibles. I'm sure some of you boys especially have heard the phrase, you're just like your father. Uh, I have to laugh because whenever I see my sons acting just like me, uh, my wife gives me that glare and I know I'm in trouble, but it's not my fault. I can't do anything about it. They just happen to be doing the same things that, yeah, you know how it works. Uh, I remember my son, Justin, my oldest son, when he was about two years old, he used to sit in the back of his car, back, back seat of the car. He had his uh, little car seat there. He had his little sippy cup and he'd, he'd take a drink out of a sippy cup and he'd go, ah. And I'm just thinking, that is the, what are you doing? You know, um, a couple days later, I was at work, and I went over and grabbed a drink of water, and of course I went, ah. 
And I went, oh my goodness, now I know, what's, I know where I learned it. And it hasn't gotten any better ever since. So, uh, Gospel Luke chapter 6. Um, let me remind us of the slide that I showed earlier. Um, desperate people need God. Comfortable people do not. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who, who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, on one, on the cheek turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks uh, you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. I'm sorry, he didn't see that. I thought the slide was up. Verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. The Gospel of Luke has begun uh, uh, proclaiming Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he says, Look, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. I have been anointed by God to be the king. The one who's anointed is the one who's going to be the king. And here's the way my kingdom's going to work. And my kingdom is going to be good news to the poor. It's going to be good news to the oppressed. It's going to, I'm going to set the captives free and the blind are going to receive sight. And then in chapter 5, Jesus has some conflict with some of the Pharisees. And then in chapter 6 now, Jesus sits his disciples down. And he says, let me tell you how it's going to work. This is the way my kingdom's going to work. Now, Luke chapter 6, and, and these, 30, these 30 verses from Luke 6, verse 20, uh, 20 through Luke 6, verse 49, about 30 verses, Luke condenses what I think are the three most important chapters in the, in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He goes up on a mountainside and he gives this great sermon. It's three chapters over 100 verses. And in the Gospel of Luke, it's 30 verses. Let me explain the way my kingdom works. The way my kingdom works is going to be blessed are the poor, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are those who are persecuted. And we discussed last week the idea of blessed are the poor. And what we so often want to do with blessed are the poor is make it blessed are the poor in spirit. But we talked about this last week and the idea that that's, that's the Christian way of doing things. You see, the poor in spirit means someone who, who knows they're dependent upon God, who, who recognizes their dependence upon God, and, and, and that's me. I'm a Christian. I recognize my dependence upon God, and I can keep my money too. Because it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke's gospel doesn't say that. Luke says, blessed are the poor. And he contrasts that with, woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are hungry and woe to you who are well fed. Luke clearly has more than just poor in spirit in mind. And what we talked about was that Jesus was, was undermining the entire... When he becomes king, his kingdom is not going to be like the kingdoms of the world. And we'll see this in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke. He's going to tell his disciples as he gets to the end, he says, okay, look, I'm going to make you kings, but we're not going to do it like the world does it. Luke 22, he says, The kings of the world, they lord it over those in authority, but not so among you. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. My kingdom is going to be different, and the way my kingdom is going to be different is this. You see, in the kings of the world, they keep the rich and powerful rich and powerful. 
That's the way the, the kings of the world work. They keep the rich and powerful, rich and powerful. And as a result, the poor become poor and remain poor. In fact, sometimes there's even more poor as a result of this. My government's not going to be that way. And I want you, the church, I want you, my followers, to implement my kingdom now. Begin bringing this in. And so when we do things, it's not going to do it the way the world does it. Now, in Luke 7 and Luke 8, Jesus is going to go out and actually show the disciples. So Luke 6, here's what my kingdom looks like. Love your enemies. Bless the poor. Luke 7, Luke 8. I want to show you what that means. And Jesus does the, the works of the kingdom. Luke 9, Luke 10. He sends the disciples out. Now you go try it out. So Luke 6 becomes that central passage of Jesus' teachings of what the kingdom of God is all about, what it means when God becomes the king. And the first thing to note is that the key theme of this passage is love. The the love of of Jesus' followers must be so extraordinary. It just doesn't look like what the world's love looks like. It's radical. Now, the thing to, be a merit, to bear in mind is Jesus is teaching what, what I, I want to use the word holistically. In other words, he's saying this is going to affect every area of your life. You see, what we've done so much as modernism has, has so heavily influenced the last 300, 400, 500 years of Christian thinking Modernism is want us to think, okay, you know, spirituality is kind of this spirituality thing and, and then there's life in the real world. Uh, you know, like when you go to a, a dinner at someone's house where the two things you're not allowed to talk about. Religion and politics. Folks, Jesus is talking religion and politics at the same time. In, in, in the Roman world, you can't separate religion and politics. In, in most of the world, you can't separate religion and politics. The Christians were persecuted in the first, second, third, and fourth centuries because, well, if something happens bad in the empire, the gods must be angry. Septimius Severus, a Roman emperor in the second century, persecuted Christians because there was all kinds of chaos in the Roman Empire of famines and strifes and wars. And and his conviction was, the gods are angry. And it must be because the Christians aren't worshipping the gods. And he began a persecution of Christians. Because religion and politics are are overlapped. By the way, the idea that we separate religion and politics is the work of the devil, not Jesus. The devil wants us to think that we, we, don't, we, we don't talk about these things. Jesus wants us to talk about these things. He wants us to understand, I have good news for the poor, he says. So what does it look like when God becomes king? The first thing is it looks like, well, love becomes this overarching uh, 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 ethic, and the command then becomes this, love your enemies. In fact, verse 27 begins with, this word, with the word but. Uh, and, and the word but in Greek that's used here is a, is an emphatic, it's a contrastive. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, I put down in the outline that there are four commands. The first one is love your enemies. But in one way, in one sense, we can say there's only one command. Love your enemies. And that the next three actually tell us what love your enemies looks like. We can look at this as four commands or as one command with the other three fleshing out more what it means. The second one is, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Number three, bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. And number four, pray for those who mistreat you. These are not easy, mind you. This is really good teaching. Jesus, hey, good job, Jesus. I love what you have to say. But really? You want me to actually do that? <laughs> that was a beautiful speech, though. 
I love that one. You know, that was, that, that, I'm going to give you an A, not only for presentation, but style and even content. Right? But then we look at Jesus and we go, you don't really mean it though, do you? It was just a good speech. Uh, Luke, 26 verses 30, uh, Luke 6 verses 29 and 30 then give us uh, four illustrations. The first illustration is if anyone hits you on the right cheek, offer him the other also. And what does this look like? Well, here's an example. If someone hits you on the right cheek, turn in the other one also. Now, of course, in most of the world even today, but certainly in the ancient world, they only did, you know, they're only going to hit you with the right hand. The left hand is for, you know, toiletries, if I can say it that way, right? Uh, the right, so if someone slaps you on the right cheek, it's a backhanded slap. It's an insult. They've shamed you. Now, in the ancient world, if you've been shamed, by the way, your job, your responsibility is to defend your honor. You've been shamed. And we think, oh, it's no big deal. You don't hold... No, it's a really big deal, folks, because if you've been shamed, that means your whole family's been shamed. And if you've been shamed, that means they're not going to hire you. If you're a businessman, no one's going to come to your business. No one's going to invite you in. No one... Because if, if you're a shameful person, the whole goal, I'm not going to associate with you because that brings me shame. I'm only going to hang out with those who bring me honor. And if you've been shamed and won't defend yourself... Sorry, we're done. It has severe social and economic consequences for being shamed. Now let me be clear, by the way. We're not talking about, for you kids, about the bully at school. That's not, we're not saying let the bully at school just bully you. No, no, no. Uh, we're also not talking about the, the abusive spouse, just letting them abuse you. That, we're not talking about you know, criminal activity. Just letting, no, no, no. In those instances, you need to stand up. Because it's actually not loving to let that abusive person abuse. Because that abusive person might abuse somebody else and you're not loving that somebody else if you don't stand up. Furthermore, that abusive person needs to stop their abuse so that they learn to not be abusive. But we're talking then about in the context of society and culture, especially when you're a Christian and they're, and they're ridiculing you or shaming you, for, especially for your faith. But even beyond that, now, secondly, if someone takes your coat, do not, do not withhold your shirt. Now, you have to understand, by the way, a coat was, a coat was more than just a jacket. A coat was your, 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 your blanket at night. This, this is what you used to keep warm with. And Jesus says, if they take that, don't worry about it. Just give me your, just give me your jacket, your, your shirt as well. Thirdly, he says, give to everyone who asks. Now, the disciples are probably sitting there going, there's just no way he means all this stuff. You know, this is, he's clearly exaggerating to make a point. This is way overboard to, you know, give to everyone. You don't give to everyone who asks. In fact, number four, he says, Who, uh, whoever takes, don't even demand it back. It's like, no, Jesus, we don't, we don't do this. And, and, you see, in that culture, I'm gonna, if I give something to you, it's because I know you're going to give it back. And until you give it back, you owe me. You're in my debt. So now I have some political friends or some economic favors or some social favors that you're going to give me because you owe me and then you pay me back. And when you pay me back, I might even get more. You see, giving is a way of getting. I give because then I get back from you and eventually you pay me back. All is good. Now I give to them. And all these people owe me and, and I become socially higher and higher and higher up the ranks. If I give to everyone, well, that poor person can't give anything back. And that ain't going to help me out. Now, you see the consequence of this. Uh, imagine that there's an earthquake. 
Uh, imagine a, a tragedy that struck a poor family. The poor family's stuck if you don't give them back, if you don't give to them. They can never get out of that. You know, a, a, a husband you know, has, has a heart attack and dies at a young age. Now there's a wife with a couple young kids and she's stuck. And no one would give to them because she can't give back. And Jesus says, if we really want to have this good news to the poor, we've got to lend to them, especially in their dire situations and their dire circumstances, so that eventually, hopefully, possibly, they can get out of it. You see, the rich don't need something in those situations, but the poor do. Chapter 6, verse 31, then, is kind of a summary command. Do to others as you would have them do to you. We call this the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This unconditional love of Jesus. And he concludes this section then with three illustrations. Number one, if you love only those who love you, what credit is it? And you'll notice each of these three are going to close uh, with that, what credit is it to you? If you love only those who love you, well, what credit is it to you? Big deal. Everybody does that is the point, right? Uh, if you do good only to those who do good to you, what credit is, it, is that to you? Everybody does that. And if you lend... Only to those to whom you expect to return. What, what credit is that? The world offers safe loans. If we only give loans to such people who, who, have, uh, who, who we know are going to pay back, that's, that's the way the world does it. But Jesus says, I want you to affect the needs of those who are needy and give to them. And then he summarizes it in chapter 6, verse 35. Be gracious just like God. Be gracious. Just, and this is the key of, above it all. Be gracious just like God. Look at verse 35 again. But love your enemies and do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend without expecting anything in return. The result, you will be great and you'll be children of the Most High. This is the way God does it. And when God becomes the king, this is how it looks. Now you can see the disciples going, all right, man, this is a little bit more than I signed up for. Um, you know, I mean, I thought this Jesus becoming the king thing would be really cool. He's done some really cool miracles. I really like the way he told the Pharisees off. That was really cool. But man, am I going to follow this? Am I in? I don't know. Well, let's hang around with them for a little while longer. Maybe we'll get some food someday when I, you know, we're out in the wilderness. He's really, we're really hungry. But this is challenging. So let's ask ourselves the questions. How do, we, uh, how do we apply this today? And the first point is this. This is exactly what God did for us. So I put up that slide. Comfortable people don't need God. Only desperate people do. Because we need to be reminded that we are those desperate people who need God. Romans 5, verse 8 says, For God, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't go to the cross and, and go, Hey, this is for all you friends of mine out there. He went to the cross for you and for me while we were His enemies. I understand, and in fact, I, I, I looked it up on Google, so it must be true, um, that, uh, why are you laughing? We all know, if you want truth, you go to Google. All right. um, Mel Gibson, when he made the movie The Passion, 
that scene where they're putting the nail in Jesus' hands, that was his own hand. Mel Gibson wanted to make sure it was his own hand putting the, the nail, because I, I nailed Jesus to the cross. I nailed, you, we nailed Jesus to the cross. He went to the cross because of my sins. And as soon as I sit in church comfortably, which we do so easily, I fail to recognize I'm that desperate person who needs God. So if this is how God did it for us, then this is how we ought to do it for others. Matthew, in fact, says it this way. Matthew 6, verse 14 says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is what God did for us. And so we ought to do it for one another. Comfortable people don't need Jesus. Desperate people do. Number two. We're called then to live this out. This isn't just great teaching. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this for me. I appreciate this. While I was a sinner, you died for me. Amen. Awesome. We're good. No, now I want you to go do this yourself. Dallas Willard said it this way. He says, when you teach children to ride a bicycle or to swim, they actually do ride bikes or swim. You don't just teach them that they ought to ride bicycles or that it's good to ride bicycles. Similarly, when you teach people to bless those who curse them, they actually do bless those who curse them. Even family members. I love that last line. Yeah. Even, right? Because who's at the hardest ones to bless? That's a, that relative at Thanksgiving, right? Even family members. Bless those who curse you. Give back to those who can't pay back. Turn the other cheek. Oh, this is going to be easy. No. This is the radical Jesus. This is the radical Jesus. I think we've just tamed him so much. And we're seeing this Jesus come around, come around, and all of a sudden, wait a minute. This is radical. Now let me give you, I think, what I think is a secret, and that is this. When someone curses you, the last thing they actually want you to do back is to bless them. When someone curses you, the last thing they want you to do back is to bless them. They want you to curse them back. They almost need you to curse them back. Because what happens then is, when they've done something bad to you, and then you do something bad to them, see, now all of a sudden, you go, well, you started it. <laughs> and you see, after they curse, you curse, they curse, you curse, eventually, we lose sight of who actually started it. And when you go complain to your boss about what somebody did, when you go complain to somebody else what somebody did, they're going to go, but you did this. Yeah, I did that because you did this. Yeah, but I did that because you did this. Yeah, but I did that. And, and, and guess what? Your credibility is lost. When you curse them back, you now have nothing you can say to turn them in. When you only bless, now they're exposed. They actually need you to curse them back. Number three, our blessing our enemies often opens the door for sharing Christ with them. Our blessing our enemies often opens the door for sharing Christ with them. Because people are not expecting love in response, it causes them to, to pause. When they curse you and you love them back, they're like, whoa, wasn't expecting that one. Remember in 2015, uh, 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 a black congregation in Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, uh, Char uh, Charleston, excuse me, in Charleston had a gunman walk in and shoot nine people in the middle of a Bible study. 
That congregation then went out that afternoon and the next day on national television and said, we forgive you. It was a racially motivated hate crime. And their response was, we forgive you. And it made the national news. In, in a sense, it's kind of tragic that it made the national news. It made the national news because that's not what everyone was expecting these people to do. But it's kind of tragic that it made the national news because that's what the Christian church should always do, even though it's intensely difficult. We should be expected to respond that way. One of the early church fathers named Tertullian, right around the year 200, so about 170 years after Jesus, uh, wrote a letter to the emperor, and he says to the emperor, he says, why are you killing Christians? He was a Christian himself. He said, why are you killing us? We're good people. You, you shouldn't be killing Christians. You know, we pay taxes. We submit to our laws. We love our neighbors. We do all, we're the kind of people you want in your empire. You shouldn't kill us. And then he made this famous phrase. He said, and the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The blood of the saints is a seed. Every time you kill us, he says, you make more Christians. It's actually not helping your cause. If you're trying to get rid of the church, it's actually not working. Because, you see, when we faithfully lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, people take notice. And they take notice and they want in. I don't know what's going on with those people. There's something different about those people. I want to find out more. When we bless those who curse, we actually advance the gospel. Which leads to the fourth point. And that is, I only have like 17 more. We'll be good. <laughs> Number four, living generously like Jesus can change the world. Living generously like Jesus can change the world. Well, one of the early church fathers was a man named Clement. Uh, uh, Clement was the bishop in Rome shortly after, right around the year 100 or so. Um, and he wrote this letter to the church, kind of saying, by the way, what Jesus is telling us in this passage, we're not only really doing it, but we should. Uh, here's what he says in second, and this is not from the scriptures, just so you know. Second uh, Clement chapter 13, verse 4, not, not actually in our Bible, but a letter from an early church father, and he says this. When, when the world hears from us that God says, quote, it's not, no credit to you if you love that, those who love you, but it is a credit to you if you love your enemies and those who hate you. When they hear this, they wonder at this extraordinary goodness. But when they see that we, do not, that we not only do not love those who hate us, do not only love those who love us, they laugh as to scorn. And the name is blasphemed. Ah. Now we're in a situation where okay, we don't have an option, folks. Because if we don't do this, the name of Jesus is blasphemed. If we do do this, the gospel's advanced. You might remember, I've showed the video in the past about uh, the movie Les Miserables. Jean Valjean has this uh, 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 release from prison. He stole some bread, spent, I think, 18, 20 years in prison, hard labor, because he stole some bread because his family was needy, and they put him in prison, and, and of course, the, the, uh, the, the officer said, you're never going to change. You're always going to be a criminal. So he, he, get, he escapes from, he gets out of prison, he's released, um, and he goes by a bishop's home, and the bishop shows him kindness. The bishop, bishop welcomes him into the home, gives him a meal and feeds him and gives him a place to, to sleep. In the middle of the night, he gets up and he starts stealing from the bishop. 
and he puts the stuff in, you know, silver and, and, and all this stuff in, in, a, in his knapsack, and, 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 and the bishop sneak, uh, comes out to see what's going on because he's already heard something, and he beats him and knocks him out and escapes. Well, the police find Jean Valjean not, not long after that, the next morning, and they bring him back to the bishop's house, and they say, look, we caught this guy. We caught him red-handed. He has all your stuff. And the bishop says, I gave that stuff to him. And Jean Valjean's looking like, what's going on? He knows, and he's, he knows he's going to go back, back to prison forever. Uh, and, 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 I'm, and I'm worried, I'm angry at you, by the way, because I told you to take the candles as well. Uh, honey, and he asks his wife, go get him the candles. And he puts them, and, and all of a sudden, he's been redeemed. He's been shown love. And the story goes on that he goes on now to live this life of giving, of generous giving. It's a life that's transformed by it. The inspector who never received mercy was never able to give mercy. But Jean Valjean, who was shown mercy, lives a life of mercy. So how do we do this? Well, let me just give a couple, a couple thoughts. And we're going to finish this more next week. My thought this week is this. Let's commit ourselves to three acts of radical blessings this week. Let's commit ourselves to radically bless three times. We've got to practice this. This is not going to happen overnight. The blessing those who curse you is not easy to do. It's the last thing we want to do. It's something we have to practice. So let's commit ourselves to three acts of radical blessing this week. A radical blessing, by the way, could be financial blessing, time, giving them time, or just giving their talents. Go serve somewhere this week. Go give somewhere this week. Or go meet with somebody who just needs you to talk with them. And make it your enemy. Make it the person in your office that you really don't want to do this with. Make it the neighbor that you really don't want to talk to. Bring snacks into your office and make sure the person who gives you the hardest time gets the first choice. Invite your coworkers out to lunch and make sure that person that nobody else likes comes with you. And then sit next to them. Ask them if there's something they can, you can pray for them about. Pray for those who persecute you. By the way, asking your enemy if you can pray for them is the best way to disarm your enemy. It's absolutely disarming. They're going to have a difficult time being your enemy from that point forward because you're praying for them. And when you pray for them, all of a sudden God begins to give you a love for them. Because when you pray that, that something goes well in their life or that there's a family member or whatever, the, you, you begin to have a love for them. Radically transforming their lives. First John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we ask that you would help us to be up to the task. Because we know in our hearts, we know what our flesh desires. And it does not desire to bless those who persecute us or those who curse us. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit would just come upon us, transform us to be the people that Jesus wants us to be, 
created in your image and in your likeness and reflecting your love for them, just like you gave your love to us. Help us to give that love back to them. Help us to go to our next door neighbor and invite them over for dinner. Help us to go to that person at our work. Help us to wherever that person may be and love them and pray for them that we might do the deeds of Jesus and help us to learn what absolute sacrificial giving looks like. And Lord, we recognize that this kind of love, this kind of giving transcends just this behavior. And we just pray, Lord, that you'll teach us and continue to teach us next week as we look at the topic of giving and say, Lord, you gave your life for us. Help us now to give it back in return to you. So, Lord, help us to love our neighbors and to pray for those who persecute us and to bless those who curse us because we can only do it by the power of Jesus Christ who gives us strength to do all things. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.